0: Chapter 6. Cold. The cold came as the town fell silent. Mid-January was long enough for the warm joy of the holiday season to freeze into a hard, silent thing. And people in Harrisonburg, Virginia, hunkered down. Christmas lights had already been stripped carefully from houses, stowed in boxes. The war effort meant no new light strings would be manufactured for the foreseeable future, so folks had to be careful about cracked bulbs and frayed wires. Years later, an unusual amount of Christmas lights from the war years would be available for vintage Christmas light collectors, for how cautiously they'd all been stored. But now, in the winter of 1945, homes and storefronts that would have stayed lit all through the harsh cold months sat darkened. So many young men were gone, anyway. Their absence was its own presence. Christmas trees, which had become renewed symbols of light and hope in the darkness of war, now lay stiff and brittle under beds of snow on the street. Even the warm exhalations of smoke from chimneys in town were halfway strangled with the apnea of coal shortages, puffs of smoke escaping like choked gasps into the frigid air. Downtown Harrisonburg was in an anxious hibernation, and just down the way, at 198 South Liberty Street, Agnes Shipley was in a kind of hibernation herself. She couldn't get out of bed. It was on doctor's orders. She'd only just come home from the hospital earlier that week, And if things got worse, she might have to return. So all day and all night, she lay in her room, the cool blue light of day filling the curtains at the window, the darkness of night sucking it back out again. It had been nearly a month since she'd given birth to the twins. Carol was dead, and Agnes Gray was still at the hospital under steady watch. Agnes hadn't seen her surviving daughter since leaving the hospital herself. Even then, she'd only gotten a glimpse of her through a wall of glass. Now, she relied on reports, doctors' and nurses' words that made their way back to her via her mother and sisters, who made daily trips to the hospital to check on the little girl. The baby was still inside a glass incubator, like an alien creature. Agnes herself was still too sick to make it there, although she had tried. She had promised her mother she was fine. She had pushed off the blankets, had ignored the dizziness in her head, but when her mother had seen Agnes's frail body shaking as she'd tried to slide out of the bed, her feet curling and colorless as they touched the floorboards, that was all it took. She wasn't ready. They eased her back onto the mattress, pulled the quilts back over her body. Now, each night, her sisters read RG's letters to her by soft lamplight, while Agnes lay in the bed with her eyes closed under thick covers of blankets and quilts. How is the weather there now? R.G. wrote in his last letter. "'I sure hope it is not so cold "'and above all that your room stays warm. "'Since I am not there to keep you warm, "'the furnace just must produce whatever heat is required.' "'But the furnace was struggling, "'as were all furnaces along Liberty Street. "'Some nights, R.G.'s words emerged in steam clouds "'from the lips of Agnes's sisters, "'as the lamplight pooled and candles crackled "'in the frigid bedroom air. "'Despite her illness and despite the cold,' When Agnes managed to get a few words scribbled down in response, or when she instructed her sisters to write a telegram on her behalf, she always told R.G. she was fine, the baby was fine, and that things were swell. Inside that icy bedroom on Liberty Street, Agnes and her sisters had developed a routine, a silent choreography. When they were finished with R.G.'s letters, when her sisters had slid them back into their envelopes, when they had all orchestrated responses back to him, And when her sisters had finally stepped back and looked down at her, Agnes knew the same question was coming. They would ask her if she was ready again. And Agnes would nod in silence. Then one sister would leave the room and come back in with the milk pump. Agnes tried not to look at the cold apparatus of rubber and glass as she lay back, while one of her sisters unbuttoned her shirt. The touch of the device on her breasts was like ice on skin. It wasn't her sister's fault. The baby needed to be fed, and the doctors said it was important to provide a mixture of formula and milk for Agnes Gray to grow strong enough to survive. To do this, to give this of herself up, she was allowing her baby to leave her world of glass, while Agnes herself would remain in the cold world that was her bedroom. Agnes was required to pump every two hours or so. With all the preparation it required, followed by the duration of the pumping process, it could take longer than an hour. Half her day was spent like this, while the other half was spent trying to recover. She could only look off at the wall as her sisters worked, squeezing the rubber sections to drain the milk into a glass bulb. The pressure and release, pressure and release. The dull, unnatural pain of it. She felt like a science experiment. Once all the energy had been drained from her body, her sisters would remove the pump and carry the milk out in its container. Agnes would be left alone in bed as they closed the door, the quilts layered over her like grave dirt, and with the candles blown out and the lamps flipped off, the darkness wrapped around her once more. Western Union Telegram, YA44, EFM, Mrs. Robert G. Shipley, 298 South Liberty Street, Harrisonburg, Virginia. Please telegraph that you are well. All my love, Robert G. Shipley. Western Union Telegram. Send the following telegram, subject to the terms of back hereof, which are hereby agreed to. Please print name and address. To Robert G. Shipley. Street and number hydroponics branch. Am home and feel fine. Baby gaining and doing nicely. All our love, Agnes. Agnes had to wait sometimes a week or longer for RG's letters to arrive so it was later in the month when she got his response to her telegram about how she was home from the hospital. That certainly is a most welcome message, and I'm very, very glad to get it, he wrote. Agnes read the letter alone now, having gained enough strength to at least read by lamplight. RG mentioned the hospital bills, asking if she knew yet how much money she would need. If so, and if my father has not sent you some already, just write him how much you will need, RG said. He should be able to send you all that you need, and especially if he has sold the tobacco, and I guess he has by this time. If it was necessary to mortgage the farm to see that you get the best care possible, it would certainly be done, and not only mortgage, but sell if necessary. You and our little girl are far more important than all the farms and Herefords in all the world. For now, R.G. said he learned from some of the officers on the island that the easiest way to get funds from the government would be to mail a photostatic copy of Agnes Gray's birth certificate and her medical bills to the Virginia State Health Department as well as to the Red Cross, although he wasn't sure how that process should play out if they needed more funds later. If I get the chance today, he said, I will go down to the personnel office on the island and see about that. Agnes lay in bed as she read the letter. That was her husband's way of caring, trying his best to orchestrate her comfort from thousands of miles away. She loved him for that, but what she needed most of all was for him to be here, his familiar hands spreading an extra blanket over her body to keep her warm, the sense of his weight beside her in the room, the warmth of his voice telling her everything would be okay. Struggling to stay warm now as she read Argy's letters in the dim light, Agnes could hardly imagine the world he was describing, the tropical sunsets and crashing waves, volcanic rocks and swarms of seabirds. The whole thing was just too bizarre. All those weeks leading up to Christmas, She had feared her husband's special mission would have him sneaking through the dangerous jungles of the Pacific, or jumping out of airplanes, or dodging bullets as he stormed European beaches. And for her to then learn the real purpose of his mission was growing tomatoes and lettuce? Upon first reading that explanation in Argy's letters, back when she'd just awakened in the hospital in early January, she had half assumed she was still tipsy on medication. But no. No. That is the way of it, as R.G. said. And she supposed him gardening for the rest of the war was better than being in harm's way, even if it did defy logic. Regardless of how busy we get, I will still be thinking of you and wondering how you are all the time, R.G. wrote in his latest letter. Heard a newscast today and they said they were having a very heavy snow, and the temperatures were around zero degrees to five degrees. I fear you are having a lot more snow and cold weather. Wish I could send you some of our nice sunshine. Miss you so very much. By the middle of January, a war broke out on Liberty Street. Agnes could hear the battle rage while she lay in bed. It went on for hours. Outside her window, echoes of crying and screaming. Military commands bellowed into the harsh winter air. She could hear the cannonball sounds of ammunition pelting soldiers all down the road. The scuffle of boots over pavement, the tumble of bodies landing in frozen grass and front yards. It was chaos. For the first time in days, she maneuvered her legs over the edge of the bed. She felt the pain of the floorboards on her swollen feet, but she managed to keep her balance. She wanted to get a good look at the battle for herself. The window was so far across the room as she hobbled over, the curtains so heavy as she pried them apart. When she gazed out the window, the street was blue and brilliant with snow. Agnes had almost forgotten how beautiful the outside world could be. From above, she had a first-hand view of the battle. She watched the soldiers run around the street below outside, dashing in the snow and hiding under fence lines, crouching behind parked cars and tree trunks, puffs of breath exploding from their faces like gunpowder. There was something almost staged about it, a performance-like quality. It was like watching ice skaters weave over a rink or ballerinas pirouette across a stage. The soldiers all wore puffy coats and snow trousers, their small bodies thick with scarves and mittens. The imprint of their boots in the snow told the history of this particular battle. Lines crossed and recrossed, loops drawn haphazardly in the grass, while big lumps showed where the bodies had fallen. The neighborhood boys had been at it with these snow battles, as Agnes later described them, for the past month now, lobbing snowballs at one another for hours, until their mothers finally called them in for dinner. There'd certainly been no shortage of ammunition, Virginia had been hit with nine inches of snow in late December, and a fresh dusting of snowfall had coated the streets almost every morning for more than a month now. By night, the snow would crust hard on the surface, freshly packable for snowballs underneath, and in the lamppost light, the streets glowed. Agnes let the curtains at the window fall closed, turning back to face the bed, but when she saw it, the pillows bunched up, the layers of quilts and blankets... The thought of lying there made her throat tighten. She couldn't just decay in this room any longer. She had to fight her way out. And now she found her feet were moving her body toward the bedroom door. For the first time since she'd come home from the hospital, she turned the knob, pushed the door open, and stepped out into the hall. Suddenly, the air tasted different. It was like emerging from a tomb. Light touched the walls gently. A never-ending corridor unfurled before her. Slowly, her legs aching, she made her way down the hall until she had reached the top of the stairs. She gripped the railing, took it one step at a time, one step at a time, until she was downstairs again, downstairs for the first time in weeks. Voices were coming from the dining room, floating toward her as if from a dream. She could hear the words lapping over one another. Brighter light bloomed down the hall. Warmth, laughter. She could even smell tonight's dinner roasted potatoes, maybe, or fresh bread right from the oven, hearty soup. All the smells of the food her mother always made on cold winter nights like this when Agnes was just a girl, all those years ago, back when she could walk without stumbling, back when her body was still her own. That first week after she emerged from her bedroom, all Agnes did was read letters. They were piled up downstairs waiting for her, Letters from family, friends, fellow church members, people from around town. She had kept up to date on R.G.'s letters while she'd been bedridden, but she hadn't realized just how many others lay waiting for her downstairs in the living room. Everyone who had heard even the slightest murmur about her Christmas ordeal, as it had become known, had written to her or to her family over the last few weeks, and the process of reading through each one was exhausting. She was still too sick to make it to the hospital, and so, despite her protests— her mother and sisters refused to take her. Agnes could barely walk, let alone manage a journey across town, especially with the cold and the streets layered in snow. All she was good for, evidently, was opening envelopes, unfolding letters, reading line after line by lamplight, then hunching over the table to write a polite response back, thanking folks for their concern. The letters were all sent from late December to early January, the worst period of Agnes's life. And as well-meaning as they were, full of prayers and sympathy, reading through them forced her to relive through those weeks all over again. "'I am so distressed to hear of Agnes's illness,' her friend Kate had written in a letter addressed to Agnes' mother on January 1st. "'It seems such a shame that she had to have this trouble because they wanted so much to have a family. I know Bob will be so hurt, too, because he is so crazy about her. I can easily imagine that you all did not have a very happy Christmas.' and I also realize that you must be all very tired now. I do so hope that Agnes has passed the crisis and that she will soon be all right and that the baby will get along fine. I am so anxious about her. There were plenty of letters from R.G.'s family, including his mother, Minnie Lee, who seemed to be taking the news especially hard, having buried her youngest son Joe and his baby girl so recently. I felt so sad all day, Christmas Day. Cry over it every day yet, Minnie Lee wrote. I know I ought not to, but it is so hard to give up the little ones. I feel now more that so much of me is gone. The war has taken such a terrible toll, and I do feel it so much. I don't think I have ever felt so depressed as I do now. Then there were the questions everyone kept asking Agnes, which she had to answer over and over. How long will the baby have to stay in her incubator? Have you let Bob know? What color is the hair, or is there any hair? What is the baby's name? Did the Red Cross get a message to Bob? Will it be better for you all to be home due to the shortage of nurses? I hope you can bring the baby home. Do you know when? Have the doctors ever decided what was the cause of your trouble? Have you named the baby? And did you name the one that died? Seeing Carol's name go unwritten, replaced with words like, the other baby or the one that died was like losing her all over again. As snow kept on falling outside the living room window, Agnes did her best to respond to every letter, every question. But there were always more letters waiting at the end of the day when the postman hiked through the snow and slid a fresh batch of envelopes into the mailbox. She still couldn't walk well on her own, so her spot in the chair by the window became her only view of the outside world, the letters she unfolded in her hands like dispatches from a foreign land. That was where Agnes was one afternoon When the phone rang in the Davis house and her mother went over to answer it. Ethel Davis stood nodding and whispering down the hall. Her few responses clipped and quiet. Then she hung up the phone and walked over to Agnes, who was still reading by lamplight. Her mother told her there was news, a call from the hospital. My dearly beloved, it looks like you are certainly having more than the usual amount of snow and bad weather. I sure hope you're having some warmer weather by this time. Have they told you yet how long Agnes Gray will need to stay in the hospital? Hope you will soon be able to go feed her if you cannot bring her home. I hope it will be possible to get some pictures of her somehow while she is so small. But she must look bad or be right on the unattractive side if she favors her daddy in any way. If she favors her mother, then she must be a very beautiful little lady. Do you know when she can come home? All my love, Bob. Agnes Gray was taken out of her incubator on January 23rd, 1945, exactly one month after she was prematurely delivered into the world. Driving through snow and slush in the family car, Agnes's family chauffeured her to the hospital for the first time since she'd been taken home weeks earlier. They helped Agnes walk across the parking lot and in through the front entrance, down the halls and up the stairs, until they had reached the preemie room. They'd made it to the hospital just in time to see the doctor carefully lift the baby girl's frail body out of the glass box in which she had experienced the first month of her life in the world. It was a small room. Nurses and other doctors stood along the wall, craning their necks to get a look. This was the team of hospital workers who had kept her baby alive the last month. It struck Agnes that in all her baby's life so far, all Agnes Gray had known of human touch and tenderness had come from gloved hands. After Agnes Gray was safely transferred out of the incubator, wrapped in warm cloth and placed in a bassinet, the doctor took Agnes aside and told her it wasn't yet time to take the baby home. She still required observation during this serious period. Not that they were expecting trouble, he assured her, but with Agnes Gray out of her incubator, the next few days would be critical, and it was important they take things slowly. Returning to her parents' home that night empty-handed was yet another loss, Agnes came to dread the darkness that swallowed the light in the windows. Her mother and sisters tried to calm her. They made tea and offered blankets and lit up the fireplace. They changed the sheets and fluffed out pillows. They pried her shoes loose from her swollen feet, rubbed her ankles and calloused heels with minty salve. But there was only so much they could do, and when the house fell silent with sleep, Agnes was alone again. She lay awake in her bedroom in the dark, her body still aching, as it always had, since her own brush with death. She couldn't lie on her side or her stomach, only on her back, so she blinked at the ceiling, propped up slightly with the pillows her sisters had slid beneath her. Outside, the wind picked up, snow swirling down the street, the windows creaking in the cold. It would never end, it seemed. Sometimes the memories returned to her, the hallucinations from her time in the hospital, the dreams... nightmares, the strange hands touching and turning her body, the terrible, terrible fear. But now, even in moments like this, when she was alone in her room, Agnes didn't linger over how close she'd come to dying over Christmas. What did it matter? The process seemed boring in retrospect. Morning sickness had turned into crippling nausea, then dehydration, weight loss, confusion, followed by extreme fatigue, low blood pressure. Rapid heart rate, loss of skin elasticity, decrease in urination, then disassociation, hospitalization, dreams in the day, feverish hallucinations at night. Days gone, nights drowning and barely breathing. When she'd given birth in a drugged haze, severe bleeding, then blinking awake days later, clawing at the bed, at her wounds, asking, What happened? What happened? Where was her baby? More drugs, more dreams. Feeling the emptiness where they'd taken her. Taken them. And yet, at this point, lying in her bed, listening to the wind howl, she simply didn't care anymore. All she could think about was her one living baby alone in that dark hospital room. How Agnes Gray might be shivering and crying out for her in the cold. And how the baby must now surely be realizing, without words or a specific awareness of it, but somehow knowing all the same through instinct that her mother had abandoned her.